Well, good evening. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you're using a few Bibles, is on page 1114. It's 1114. Uh, It's been a little while since we've been together. This is uh, probably one of the longest four-part sermon series we'll ever go through, but uh, we've spoken previously on uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1, how God creates the light and gives us a a reflection of his own character, and then he creates man and gives us yet another reflection of his own character. We've visited uh, the construction of the tabernacle and the lampstand that God places there, and then we're also reminded that God uh, in Revelation reminds us that we are little lampstands as well for his light. And now we turn to uh, this very famous passage, uh, the Beatitudes, and we get a glimpse of this kingdom of heaven uh, as it's approaching earth and as it's uh, becoming populated here on earth throughout Jesus's ministry uh, and Christ stands atop a mountain uh, delivering uh, and exegeting the law just like Moses did when he brought it forth from from God but he explains it even more fully than Moses does and he tells us how it is that he fulfills this law and then equips his people to do so Uh, and so uh, we'll start here in Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 16 so listen and hear the word of our Lord. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is, on, that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's where we'll end the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Uh, Those of you who grew up, uh, or at least were around in the 80s and 90s, can maybe corroborate my story, but uh, I I remember fondly as a child, most of the bathrooms in my friends' houses uh, often had like blue or yellow walls and then some kind of seashore decoration. And right by the exit door of the bathroom, there was some kind of wall hanging with a lighthouse uh, and some kind of, pers- I have a couple of heads nodding, so I'm not insane. That's good. Uh, and, uh, and for me, this, this image of a lighthouse somewhere, I just always found that really beautiful. It seemed like a beautiful picture. I saw them all over the place. And uh, actually, one of my earliest Bibles, I have a sketch of when I was not paying attention to the sermons and I was drawing a lighthouse in the, <laughs> in the back of the Bible. Uh, And it wasn't until I was probably 12 or 13 years old that I realized that lighthouses served more than just a decorative function, Uh, (laughs) that they were more than purely ornamental. 
that they that they actually serve a purpose, and that that purpose, of course, uh, as we all know, uh, above the age of twelve, uh, that that they are there to to shine a light out, so that ships see it, so that they avoid the rocks, so that they avoid each other, and they avoid disaster, avoid crashing and dashing themselves uh, against the shorelines. Right? They they serve a real purpose to broadcast where you are so that you don't meet danger. As I mentioned earlier, we've seen already that God is the source of light for the sun, the moon, and the stars. God is the lampstand, and we become lampstands in him. But in much the same way, God's light must be the source for his people who are his lights, like little lighthouses set up all over the world, proclaiming and shining forth his light uh, so that we can help others avoid the dangers, but we must also avoid the dangers ourselves. And so our main point this evening, I hope you grabbed uh, an outline in the back, our main point this evening is that even in the midst of great darkness, you need to look to Christ in order to shine the light of his kingdom. Even in the midst of great darkness, look to Christ in order to shine the light of his kingdom. And children, if you're drawing a picture, I've asked you if you would draw a, a picture of a city set up on a hill uh, and tell me or draw a picture of who is in that city and what are they doing? Uh, is everybody welcome in the city? Who else can come? I look forward to seeing your pictures later on. Well, the first thing we see in this passage or that we should take note of is that even Christians are affected by the darkness of this world. Uh, Christians are affected by the darkness of this world. We, we may be called out and separate and different from many in the world, but that does not mean that we are completely isolated from all of the events that go on around us. And as we look at this opening, this list of Beatitudes, we read uh, different character traits that, that sort of stick out to us as, as difficult things for us to have to, to process, difficult things for us to have to go through. We read that, that there will be those who are persecuted. We read that we have to be peacemakers, which of course assumes that there will be people who are not for peace. We read uh, that blessed are those who mourn. This is a world that contains mourning. And Christians even are not exempted from this. It's not as though we go through life with only smiles on our faces and never have to deal with difficult times. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, it sounds like a, a beautiful image, somebody yearning. We read in, in Psalm 42, of course, that as the deer pants for the water, so my soul yearns for you. But that, of course, implies that, that there is a lack of righteousness going around. And that when we're hungering and thirsting and yearning after this thing, that that puts us in a different category from the rest of the world. And that is a difficult situation to be in. And, and God does not deny that there are hardships in life, especially for the Christian. Uh, we read about the, the merciful, meaning that we will need to show mercy as people in God's kingdom. The meek, meaning that there will be those who are not at all intending to display meekness. Those who will overpower God's church throughout the world. The pure in heart, which of course means that there are those who are very impure in heart and the poor in spirit. This, is, this assumes a pretty dark and difficult world that Christians have to go through. Uh, the ones who are blessed are the ones who are going to bear the brunt of these attacks. Uh, all of these character traits are good and positive character traits, and we see that as we open and as we, as we go through the entire Bible. These are all, of course, reflections of the character of God as he gives it to his people. Uh, but his people are going to be very different from a world that wants to see its arm in control. 
And so as God has comforted us with his light by saying that you're blessed even in the midst of these trying circumstances, but there are going to be trying circumstances. It's a reminder that, that any of the trials that we face in this life are not unexpected by God, that, that God has ordained these trials in a sin-afflicted world, uh, and that we are battling uh, a very powerful, higher power than us, but not a higher power than our God who's given us you're struggling perhaps even to, to find a job that allows you a world uh, a work-life balance sorry that's an autocorrect typo of <laughs> a, a work-life balance something that uh, allows you perhaps to be a spiritual leader in your home or, or to be able to, to minister to your neighbors in a way that you desire uh, this is not again unexpected to God but it is a reminder that that it, that is something that we have to fight against this is going to be a push we have to get ourselves out of uh, the sort of difficulty that the world presses against us. If you're trying to, uh, if you're cornered perhaps in the break room and you're investigated after reasons why you aren't partaking in a certain party or celebration for a coworker or uh, why you aren't showing up to this and that on Sunday, uh, I, I know that there are people who are hounded by these things, not, not just uh, left curious, but, but people who will dog after us in these circumstances and wonder why we won't just be like the world. Uh, and this is, again, a reminder that you are blessed even if you are meek, even if you are merciful and pure in heart, that the Lord sees your situation and that he is there to comfort us in our, these hardships. In other words, uh, there wouldn't be a lighthouse anywhere if there weren't dangers. And the Lord gives us this light. He points us to the blessings in his kingdom because we need this hope. Uh, and God surely provides the hope and the light that we need. And so the second thing that we see in this passage is that Christ has brought you into his kingdom of blessing. Christ has brought you into his kingdom of blessing. Uh, one of my favorite grades to teach music in at, at Seven Oaks is fourth grade, and we talk about the Middle Ages, and I often start off that section by putting up a map of Europe in the Middle Ages and asking the students what's missing. Uh, and they're very sharp, they're very quick, and they, they notice that there are no boundary lines uh, between all of the countries like we expect to see in a map. And that's, of course, because there was such turmoil in the Middle Ages. Uh, one day this might be part of this empire, and another day it might be part of some other empire. Uh, and there's just so much in constant flux. And that, that's sort of the, the world into which Jesus is speaking as he comes and, and provides this sermon on the mount. He's talking to a bunch of Jews and maybe a handful of Gentiles in the middle of Jerusalem, which is occupied by Rome, who got it from the Greeks, who got it from the Babylonians, or the Persians, who got it from the Babylonians, or this whole thing is just a constant turmoil and mess of people wanting to, to take over and take over them. And God, through Jesus, speaks into this situation and says, there's a kingdom here in which everyone's blessed. Jew, Gentile, Roman, Persian, Babylonian, there is blessing for anybody who's in my new kingdom. And all you have to do is be in my kingdom. Uh, each of these beatitudes, that's the, the Latin word for blessing, begins with that, that very simple word, blessed are you. We sang this word a moment ago in Psalm 1. Uh, we also see this, this word pretty frequently throughout the Bible. This is something that uh, frequently occurs also in the book of Revelation. And I put a couple of examples in your outline we read in revelation 1 3 blessed 
is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And similarly, in Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And actually, this this word uh, in the original language, they don't have a a verb in between. If you're using the New King James, that word are is is italicized uh, because it's not there in the original. It's just blessed, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed those who mourn, blessed meek, blessed those who hunger. Uh, It's a constant reminder, sort of a very direct statement that you are blessed in these circumstances. In that Revelation passage, we would read, blessed he who reads aloud, blessed he who hears. Uh, It's a a one-to-one equivalence that if you are hearing this, you are blessed. If you are reading this, you are blessed. If you are meek, you are blessed. There's no question about it. It is a a direct promise to you given from God uh, and perhaps even a sort of saying, just by hearing the word of God, you have received a blessing because this word of God is a beautiful blessing. Uh, growing up, uh, I was told to be respectful and hardworking and kind and upright, and I was told, you're a punt, and that's what punts do. And I imagine that with a slight change, most of you heard similar things growing up. Uh, and so a little bit of, ba- little bit of other background, my, my dad's a third-generation plumber, so he's a plumber, and his dad's a plumber, and his dad was a plumber, and I went to school and studied opera singing. <laughs> so sort of a different direction. <laughs> and I remember when I was in college, I was walking through a, a store one day with my dad, and we saw a bunch of watches and pocket watches, and I said, oh, those pocket watches look really neat. I'd love to have one. And my dad goes, yeah, that does look great, but we're not pocket watch guys. And I thought for a second, is this, is this a punt thing, or is this... Is this who we are? Is this who I am? Would I, if I got a pocket watch, would I be betraying three generations of plumbers? Would I, right? What's the, what's the correlation between these two things? And it, and it took me uh, longer probably than it should have to realize, no, if I, if I do this, right, if I were to buy a pocket watch and wear one, uh, I wouldn't be any less of a punt for that. I wouldn't change who I am because my, my identity as a punt is grounded in something entirely different. And that's the sort of character that's going on Uh, As we read through these Beatitudes, it's a reminder constantly that if you are a Christian, your identity lies in being blessed in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. In fact, even as we read through these, we see a bunch of different conditions in which believers find themselves all throughout life. Uh, This is, I I should say, I grew up in in a Christian school where we sort of had a Beatitude of the month, if you will. Blessed are the peacemakers. So on January, you should try to be a a peacemaker. And if you're a peacemaker, then you'll be called the son of God. And you'll get a little certificate for being a peacemaker. And if you're not, oh well, try another one. Uh, But that's not really what's happening here. What's happening is we, we get glimpses of the Christian life in all of the different parts. All of the different facets of the Christian life. There are times where you will be and feel and exhibit what it means to be poor in spirit. There will be seasons of mourning, as many of us know all too well. Be times for meekness. 
And these three in particular strike us as, as very weak traits according to the world, right? We don't want to be mourning. The world wants people who are bold and joyful and happy all the time. That's why we have constant advertisements. That's why we're inundated with technology that's all about making us happy and fulfilling our wants in that moment. But, but God tells us that actually there is blessing in being a people of mourning at the right time. There's a time for boldness. There's a time for wise boldness. But there's also a time for being meek. And as we go through life, right, whatever you're doing, even hungering and thirsting after righteousness, having to make peace when those against you want to make war, it's a statement of fact that you are in a kingdom of heavenly blessing. And you need that reminder that you are blessed in all of the different aspects of life. And maybe like me, you were raised to think one or two of these is you, and that's your promise to hold on to. Uh, I remember thinking, if at least if all else fails, at least I inherit the earth, whatever good the Bible seems to say that is. But that's, that's really not what's going on. You are an inheritor of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of great blessing. And we really ought to understand these as blessed are you, even in times of meekness, poorness of spirit, purity of heart, times of persecution. And you, being in this kingdom, does put you in the middle of a war. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 13. So that's our third point this evening. You need to find strength in Christ's light. Find strength in Christ's light. So we know, as we've read, that Christ's light is his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness, and that we are his light, his reflection of this all throughout the world. And we've just finished in verse 9 reading about, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God's people uh, perhaps ought to be antithetical to this idea of war and of, of pushing against people. Uh, when all we want to see set up is righteousness. But then we read verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and the fact is that as much as we may be chasing after peace and we may want to see peace in this world, there is a war going on. And we cannot just back off and say, well, my, my little bubble has peace and nothing else is going on. And we have to engage in the heavenly and spiritual conflict that's going on, the, the forces of evil and darkness in this present world. We will be persecuted, as we read in verse 10. And that word, uh, it doesn't just mean sort of uh, bad things said about you at times. It literally means to be pursued as by a hostile enemy, to be dogged after, to be chased with, with spears. That's the sort of persecution we need to be expecting as we go throughout the world and when people say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, and he still says you are blessed when this happens. You're blessed when people spit at you, when people threaten imprisonment because you're speaking on account of righteousness' sake. You're blessed when they chase after you mercilessly, when they hound you, you're blessed. And when people say all kinds of lies about you on account of Jesus, you are still blessed. And Jesus knows this is coming and that a blessing is the great comfort here. And it doesn't say you will be blessed. It says you are blessed when people persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because great 
is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we look through the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, they are not easygoing, uh, laissez-faire lives. Elijah is constantly hounded by doubt and depression, thinking that he's the only righteous man left in Israel who loves the Lord. Isaiah is told to walk around naked for a year, bearing the shame of the people of Israel. Jeremiah is called gloom and doom and destruction. We still say if somebody is going on a rant about how terrible things are, they're launching a Jeremiah. Ezekiel, as we were going through the study last year, I was reading that uh, Ezekiel is the prophet who has to lay on his side for a year and a half after having shamed himself by cutting off all of his hair and all of his beard and throwing some of it into the fire and chasing it through a city with a sword and then he has to bake little hand cakes that are going to starve him for a year and a half over a fire made of cow dung. And a lot of commentators nowadays, not, uh, not conservative commentators, but many uh, biblical analysts say that uh, obviously Ezekiel saw a spaceship and went crazy in the opening of the book, or he was abused as a child, and this is why this man can't do anything uh, fit throughout the rest of the book. We are inheritors of this same faith. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They're still persecuting the prophets. But our reward in heaven is great. Our reward in heaven is great. Because the same thing that they were looking forward to in their ministry is the same one who is preaching this message right here. And he came to earth and he preached this message of the kingdom and he began a kingdom and he brings us into his kingdom and he died and rose again to bring people into his kingdom and be that reward. And so persecution should be expected but we can endure because we can look to Jesus who did endure the same fate as these prophets and so much worse because we are reviled along with him in a much less way. But we've been united to him, and we have this blessing of being united to Christ, our very great reward. Uh, When keeping and making peace seems hard, and when standing strong when others are trying to make us run away seems very difficult, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring, of course, to these Old Testament saints and those who are around them, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And because Jesus endured these great difficulties, we can keep our eyes fixed on him and endure this race and this war of open hostility against the kingdom of God, because he is our very great reward. And there is victory in him. 
the fourth thing that we see this evening is that you need to conquer with Christ's light. And we read this in the remaining verses here, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Christ tells us that you are the light of the world. Uh, He's soon in his ministry to say, I am the light of the world, but even at this point, he's identifying believers with that very character trait of his, that he is the light of the world, and so too are we. He says that believers are a, a city set on a hill, which is, is now in America sort of become an iconic statement, but, but back for them, as they're sitting on a mountain looking over Israel, they see Jerusalem, the city that was built on a hill. And as we look throughout the rest of the Bible, as we see in Ezekiel, as we see in Revelation, the, the true Jerusalem, the new Zion, the city of God, is often spoke of as a city set up on a hill. So God's people, God's church, are the city set on a hill. And you're not going to hide the city of God because God's the one who builds it. You can't conquer it. It's one of the things that made Jerusalem so difficult to take in the book of Joshua is it is a city up on a hill. That's why they were so popular in the Middle Ages. It's hard. It's hard to attack a city that's on a hill. It's more easily defensible. It's very hard to attack because you can't hide it. It's going to be under attack constantly. It's an ideal place to be, and those who want it gone are never going to stop attacking a city on a hill. But it's been established. And in the same way, Jesus says, just like you you can't hide a city that's set up on a hill, you also don't turn on a lamp and put a covering over it, because it's too important for that, and it's a waste of good, precious light to just cover it up. You put it up on a post where it will light the house. And Jesus sandwiches this idea of the city set on a, up on a hill with these two light images. Right? The city should be providing light. It should be broadcasting light like a lighthouse showing and shining to all of the world around it so that you can dispel darkness, to put darkness to flight. This is why the city's up on a hill. Because the higher up you put the light, the more it does to dispel the darkness. The more it lights up, the more the darkness goes away. Uh, You can't spread darkness. You only have places where light isn't shining. And so if the city on a hill is up on a hill and it's shining its light, the darkness will be beat back. I reflect on uh, Jesus telling to Peter after he proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. I'm often told sort of the the gates of hell are going to keep approaching and keep approaching, and I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, gates don't move. Gates don't go anywhere. Darkness can't spread. All it takes for the gates of hell to not overcome the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God to keep advancing keep doing what we're called to do and shine the light and beat back the darkness. We have to be the people of God bearing his light. 
And this is true as we go out to conquer darkness in the world all around us, but we have to remember it's also true as we go out to conquer the dark darkness in our own hearts. C.S. Lewis, uh, I did not put this quote in your outline, it's, it's quite lengthy, uh, but he has a wonderful analogy for what this looks like as we become Christians, as we're in the word and as we're we're acknowledging what God's word has to say about the darkness of our own hearts. He notes in Mere Christianity, he says, we begin to notice, besides our particular sinful acts, we begin to notice our sinfulness. We begin to be alarmed, not only about what we do, but about what we are. This may sound rather difficult, so I'll try to make it clear from my own case. When I come to my evening prayers and try to reckon up sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious one is some sin against charity. I've sulked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed, and the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected, I was cut off my guard. I had not time to collect myself. Now, that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards those particular acts. They would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate and premeditated. On the other hand, surely what a man does when he has taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar, but if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. And it seems a simple solution then. And if there is so much darkness and rottenness and rats running around in our hearts and they'll flee when the light shines, shouldn't we leave the light shining? Shouldn't we go around stamping about all over the house of our heart with the gospel on repeat and on full volume? We can do this when we're engaged, not only with God's word, Uh, When we're engaged in prayer, when we're engaged with corporate fellowship like this, when we're under the preaching of the word, when we're singing psalms together, when we do this as a community, these are ways that the light shines inside of our hearts and beats back the darkness so that then we together, when we gather like this, can sit up as the city on a hill and shine the light to a whole city, a whole world of watching people who need the light of the gospel proclaimed. Because we're doing this for one another, and this is what the city was built for. By a king who knows what he's doing. To beat back darkness and proclaim his glorious light. If we even take it another step further, as Jesus does in verse 16, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's a sort of natural progression, Jesus says, that if you're shining forth his light... They will see your good works, and and they will glorify your Father in heaven. The the evidence is that when we shine forth God's light, other people turn from their hostility, and they glorify the Father in heaven. These are the same people who, in verses 11 and 12, are reviling and persecuting you, who persecuted the prophets, who do not desire this reward, and yet when they see what the church has to offer because we are shining Christ's light and not something we're inventing. But they want that too. And that's the way it's designed to be. Just like the sun's light shine and conquers, Jesus' light shines and conquers 
And those enemies who would revile and persecute are turned and lit up by the light of Christ. And if that's not a conquering city on a hill, I don't know what is. And look at what happens to those conquered foes. Our fifth point this evening, that you can shine Christ's light with all of those in his kingdom. As we look back at verses 11 and 12 and, and combine this idea with verse 16, that, that there will be those who revile and persecute and hate the light of God. And yet when they see the light really working in the church, when we pursue and love God and make that manifest in our works, that they turn to the kingdom, we're reminded that, as Paul says elsewhere, such too were some of you. Nobody gets into the kingdom right at birth. Nobody gets a free pass into the kingdom and has to go without these things, without the difficulties of this life, without the difficulties of sin coming and bearing on us, and without a hostile heart to the Lord. We go through saying evil against God and his people falsely before we ever get into his kingdom. Every one of us in this room has come from a heart of darkness and wickedness against the Lord to seeing the light of Jesus in his church as it's proclaimed from the pulpit and turning and loving and glorifying our Father in heaven. And you know what? When those people turn, they too receive all the same blessings in the Beatitudes. They too become poor in spirit. They too mourn the darkness of the world. They too become meek and they hunger and thirst after righteousness. They become merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers. That's not where they were before. That's not where you were before. And that's not where I was before. One of the most beautiful, beautiful things about this city on a hill is that it's made up of former traitors to the king, enemies of state who have now been changed by a beautiful and glorious king. Elizabeth and I just finished reading The Lord of the Rings, and you have a number of episodes throughout the books where these kind, sweet little hobbits stand up and pledge their allegiance to a king that they just met two minutes ago because they're in awe of the majesty of the king and what a good king he is. And so they drop everything right there and say, I will serve this king for the rest of my life, no matter what it means. And that sounds like a wonderful, wonderful depiction of what it means for us to come to Christ. But I don't think that's true. I think a better picture would be if somebody who weren't kind and charitable and loving and hospitable like a hobbit, if somebody like an orc walked up to a king and went, wow, that king is amazing. I pledge my life to him. That would be incredible. That would be a miracle. And that is what happens to every one of us as we come into the kingdom of God. We drop our hostilities to the king and we fall down in the face of his goodness and his light that shows in his righteousness. And God conquers these foes and joins all of these people together, his people, into a church, into something new, and into something different than what's ever existed before because this is his kingdom. And when the enemies of state are made new and being made new, they become blessed, they become persecuted, they shine their light, and somebody sees and glorifies God and becomes made new, and the whole thing keeps going. 
because the Lord's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and it endures today because of the righteousness of Christ set forth high up on a hill and who died for us and was raised again because of that righteousness. And now that new life, that new light resides in each and every one of us. Before we close out this evening, I'd like to close with a couple of other verses uh, from throughout the Bible that sort of point us to this new identity that we have. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8 says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. That's a reminder that not only are we called to be different, but we are in the middle of a war against the darkness and against those who wouldn't have us be different. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. These are ways to shine forth Christ's light, not, not merely the things that come together as we come and worship as a church, but not grumbling, not disputing, being blameless and innocent. We are called to be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and that is shining forth Christ's light. I'd like to conclude with uh, Isaiah 49, verse 6, which is also uh, in your outline. God says, it is too light a thing. In other words, it would be too easy if this is all I did. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Christ alone brings the light of his salvation as he renews enemies and brings them under his kingdom. Conquering, we go forth in his name. So brothers and sisters, even in the midst of great darkness, Look to Christ so that you may shine the light of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in Christ we have been transformed uh, from people who, as we read in Isaiah at the start of the service, seem to worship falsely and love it as truth to people who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who fight on your behalf and for the advancement of your kingdom, we pray that you would continue transforming us. And in the midst of a dark, dark world, Lord, remind us of the great blessing that we have that comes from Christ in every moment of our lives. That we uh, are not only a conquering kingdom, but we are conquered foes. And we may be your servants each and every day that we may shine forth in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Lord, let us live as people of the light sober as in the day. I honor you in each step we take. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now if you'll turn in your blue psalm book with me to Psalm 132c. This is Psalm 132c. Uh, we sing at the end of stanza two that the Lord will clothe her priests with my salvation. 
Then her saints for joy will sing. I'll make David's power flourish in stanza three. My anointed's lamp prepare. I with shame his foes will cover and he a shining crown will wear. And we go forth singing uh, the song of our crowned and shining king. Let's sing, let's stand and sing.